Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Chris Tonelli. Chris and I are co-directors and co-owners of the North Carolina Book Festival. Chris is a poet. He is a publisher for Birds LLC. He is the co-owner of So-and-So Books. He is a librarian. What else are you, Chris? A dad. Yeah. A bad basketball player. All kinds of things. Um, A skilled basketball player, I would say. Um, So, today we are here to talk about the 2020 North Carolina Book Festival, and we keep adding to this lineup every day. We have some exciting things to talk about for the first time on this podcast, but um, first I kind of want to run through some of the uh, programs that we have. This year we're going to be at Kings and Neptunes in downtown Raleigh like we were last year, Um, and then we are also going to be at HQ Raleigh uh, where we'll have some programming. Last year the book fair was there. And uh, this year, the book fair will be at CAM, the Contemporary Art Museum in Raleigh, where we had uh, some programming last year. So we're kind of flipping HQ and CAM around. Um, But first, at King's, it looks like we're going to have um, Tupelo Hassman. And Tupelo, uh, besides being an amazing author... um, her newest book is called Gods with a Little G, and her first book was called Girl Child. She also uh, reads tea leaves. She does literary tea leaf readings, and we're going to try to talk her into doing some of those at the book festival this year. Chris, have you ever had um, a tea leaf reading or a psychic reading? No. Uh, well, like some tarot stuff. Yeah. But uh, never tea leaves. So I'm excited. Yeah, this will be a first for me, too. And um, Tupelo's book, Gods with a Little G, is great. It's kind of about a group of kids that live in California on either side of a bridge. Um, You know, picture the Bay Bridge, maybe. And in one city, uh, the kids are not allowed access to the Internet or um, television or anything like that. And then on the other side of the bridge, the kids are more... um, some people say enlightened, some people would say the opposite, I don't know, I'll leave that up to you, um, but it's a fantastic book, and I had the privilege of interviewing Tupelo earlier this year about Gods with a Little G, and we will hear a little bit of that interview right now. Tupelo, the protagonist of the novel is Helen, or Hell, as she is called by some of those who are close to her, and Helen lives with her father, Uh, Her mother has passed away, and her aunt is a psychic, amongst other things. Um, I'm curious about your inspiration for including a psychic in the town of Rosary. And in this context, uh, I want to quote a sentence from page 20, which is, I don't know that anyone wakes up in the morning with plans to have her fortune told. Is this true? You know, I think that's true, but... I will say that my editor asked me if that was true. She said, don't, don't some people plan to do this? I, I don't know those people. Uh, I, I believe all kinds of people exist, but I don't know those people. But I, I don't plan a lot when I'm writing, but I did want to have a counter voice to the religion in Rosary. Helen's dad is a fervent and strict believer. And, I'm not saying Helen's not, but she has her own path. So 
to have Aunt Beverly there helps with that. And also in their family, there's meant to be maybe some inherited psychic trait. So Aunt Bev can give voice to that since Helen's mom has passed away. Right. And speaking of psychic traits, Tupelo, can you talk to us about reading tea leaves, please? <laughs> yeah. I can. I didn't mean for this to be a, a thing that I ever talked about. But so I've read tea leaves since I was little. My mom taught me how. One time. She never mentioned it again. She she passed away a long time ago. And so I would always do this for my friends after sushi, right? Just very casually. Mm-hmm. And then a friend, when I lived in New York, said, I've I've told these people that you can read tea leaves. They need someone for this party and they'll pay you 50 bucks or whatever, whatever it was, which I, I dearly needed $50. And, um, and I said, no way. And then I said, okay, if they'll, if they promise to only pay me, if I do an adequate job, I'll give it a go. And, um, and it was fine. And I did it a couple of times in that way. And then in the, in the book, this is Helen's quote unquote gift to read tea leaves. And so of course I talked to my editor about it because I confused her for my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I outed myself and then she was surprisingly super into it, super into the whole realm. Uh, she's very open. And, um, and long, longer story, a little bit shorter. She convinced me that I should read tea leaves on FSG's Instagram for strangers. And so I did that on the publication day and it went well. I mean, in my style of tea leaf reading where I don't tell anyone something they don't know, but something I wouldn't know, it was successful. So here we are. All right, we're back, and um, that was Tupelo Hassman. And next we're going to talk about our friend uh, Belle Boggs. Chris, what can you say about Belle? Uh, Belle is the fearless leader uh, at the MFA program uh, at NC State. Um, Her third book, Gulf, uh, is out now, and that is a sort of meta look at MFA programs. Um, her first two were a great book of short stories and um, and some nonfiction. So she does it all. Um, and so I'm excited uh, to hear her uh, speak again at the North Carolina Book Festival. Yeah, and um, besides talking about her book, The Gulf, she will also be teaching a workshop with our friends from the Red Bud Writing Project. I will talk a little bit more about that later, but um, the golf, as Chris said, it's about a, um, I believe it's a woman whose grandmother had some rental property in Florida and um, gifts that property to um, to her granddaughter, and who ends up opening a low residency MFA workshop for Christians. That's right. Um, yeah, and um, you know, chaos ensues as hilarity. one would uh, yeah, hilarity ensues as one would imagine. Um, I also got to talk to Bell earlier uh, this year about the golf, um, and we'll play you some of that interview right now. And in this book, the golf, the protog- the protagonist Marianne. And her ex-fiancé Eric have a joke about starting a creative writing workshop for Christians 
and that joke becomes a reality. But what I want to know is, what was the genesis of your idea, Bell Boggs, to write a story about a low-residency creative writing workshop for Christians? Oh, um, thank you so much for your kind words, Jason. Um, I mean, to be quite honest, I, I'm really interested in... Um, just as a person, I'm interested in scams and bad ideas and bad business ideas. I'm not a business person or someone who obviously engages in scams or scamminess, but I find them fascinating to learn about and to think about. And, um, you know, I am really lucky to teach in a wonderful um residential MFA program, um, full residency MFA program here at NC State. But there was a time when I thought, and I've been an educator pretty much my whole career, and I've taught everything from uh, kindergarten to um, uh, continuing education, uh, GD, um, everything in the middle, high school, middle school, elementary school. And um, and I remember thinking that I would never um, kind of land at an MFA program, and that was just probably not in the cards for me. And, and this was actually before there were quite so many um, low-residency programs, which are, you know, many are just wonderful places for people who don't have the same ability to go and move across the country to go to an MFA program like our many of our students do. Um, thinking, well, it would be great to start one. I bet you could start one for Christians, and I bet that would be really popular. And then I also thought about that it would be ridiculous for me to start such a program. And I think that's where the idea came from, just the, the um, you know, the way that such a program might get started and at the time my surprise that there wasn't a program like that because there is such I mean unfortunately there's just such an increase in um, you know in, in for-profit um, schools and kind of scammy programs like the one that uh, Marianne and, and Eric wind up starting. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. And we're back, running on uh, down the list of the programs that we're going to have at King's this year on Saturday, February 22nd for the North Carolina Book Festival. Uh, we're going to have a science fiction panel in which uh, we're going to welcome Mir Lafferty uh, from Chapel Hill. We're super excited that she's joining us. She is a multiple-time Hugo and Nebula Award winner um, for short stories and her podcast. Uh, and also, she um, wrote the novelization for the last Star Wars film. I guess not the newest Star Wars film, which is um, The Rise of Skywalker now, but the one before that. 
Um, so excited to have her on board. And then we're going to have um, Kim Stanley Robinson. And we are very excited to have Kim Stanley Robinson here. Perhaps the most decorated science fiction author um, living in the world, I believe. Uh, going back to 1984 or so, Kim has won uh, one or two awards a year, it seems like. And every time he puts a novel out um he's winning something so we're very happy to have him coming from sacramento um and then after that we've got john kessel and speaking of awards uh john has also won several hugos and nebulas um he was a uh teacher at the mfa program at nc state he's recently retired um he wrote two books last year. One was called The Moon and the Other, which is more of your uh, hard sci-fi novel. And then he wrote a book called Pride and Prometheus, which um, is a cross between Pride and Prejudice and Frankenstein and was one of the uh, most surprising books I read in the last year. It ended up being one of my favorites. Um, it was totally unexpected. Uh, I was honestly expecting it to be kind of one of those uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies kind of crossover type of novels, but it was not. And um, he did win a Nebula Award for uh, Pride and Prometheus, a fantastically written book. Um, Chris, do you have anything to say about John? Um, <clears throat> yeah, we both happen to... Fun fact, we both happen to have had him as a professor when we were in the English department at NC State. Yeah, and John's a great guy, and um, we're going to play an excerpt of an interview uh, from earlier this year with John when he was talking about the aforementioned Pride and Prometheus. Day now, John, and excuse my language listeners, but you wrote the hell out of this book, didn't <laughs> you? Uh, I didn't know what I was expecting or what to expect when I picked it up, but I was not expecting a masterwork of uh, literary sci-fi and horror, which it most definitely is. Uh, the novel Pride and Prometheus, for those of you who don't know, is an extension of a shorter story of the same name, and that story won the Nebula Award in 2008. The novel, as some of you may have guessed, is a mashup of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but it is so much more than that. Uh, what gave you the idea to bring these two disparate works together? Well, uh, I was at a, a writer's uh, retreat and workshop, and we were discussing each other's manuscripts, and one of the other writers there, a fellow named Ben Rosenbaum, had a story that was a uh, takedown of Jane Austen, and it was pretty funny, uh, and, uh, but as we were talking about it, it occurred to me that Jane Austen uh, was uh, writing a contemporary to uh, Mary Shelley, even though they didn't know each other, and Shelley was a generation younger. And yet I never, and I teach English uh, and American literature, but I, I'd never had seen the two writers talked about together, and uh, certainly not the books. And, and so that got me thinking about, uh, about uh, the differences between Jane Austen and, and Mary Shelley, between uh, the novel of manners, which is Jane Austen's, or she's the mother of that, and uh, the gothic uh, and science fiction, which uh, Mary is, is uh, one of the progenitors of. And so that really got me thinking about it. And then I was uh, reading uh, Pride and Prejudice, and uh, I noticed that it says that uh, 
um, Mr. Darcy's estate is Pemberley is near the town of Matlock in Derbyshire. And it happens that Victor Frankenstein and his friend Henry, when they come to England later in, in Frankenstein, pass through the town of Matlock. So I thought, wow, that's a coincidence that I've never seen anyone do anything with. So I, I, I immediately started thinking, well how, well, how could I bring these two things together? And in the introduction of the book, you thank Karen Joy Fowler for asking you to write it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Um, Karen um, saw the original story, uh, Pride and Prometheus, which was a, a novelette, and uh, she told me, you know, John, this should be a, a novel. And at that point, I didn't really uh, feel like it, it was a novel. I, I thought I had told everything I needed to, to tell. And not only that, at the same time, that about that time, the novel uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies came out, which I did not like. It's not really a novel. It's kind of a joke. And I, w I wanted to write something serious. And so I sort of didn't want to be put in the same box as that. So I, I put it aside. But then eight years later, I was thinking about it. And I realized I had not really told, I'd told sort of the, uh, the middle of the story, but not the beginning or the end. And, and so what was originally the novelette is the events of that story are still in this book. But I would really kind of defy anyone to, to find uh, any beginning or ending there. I really did transform it into a, a much longer story. We're back, going down the programming at King's here. The next thing we've got up is uh, Katya Apikina, who's going to be in conversation with Jeff Jackson. Um, Katya wrote a book called The Deeper, The Water, The Uglier, The Fish that came out earlier in this year. It was shortlisted for the LA Times Book Award. Uh, she's on a fantastic press, $2 radio, out of Columbus, Ohio, that we support a lot. This novel is... Uh, sort of Nabokovian um, in this context. It's about um, an English professor uh, who was married to a very, very young woman who kind of um, goes off the deep end, and they have two daughters uh, who respond to the splitting up of their parents very differently. Um, it's a crazy book. Chris, have you read this book at all? I haven't. This is actually the one I'm looking most forward to every time we host authors there's always someone that i'm interested to discover and this is the one that i think the the festival is going to uh, bring me to this year yeah i think katya is gonna be um the author that blows up very soon and much in the way that hanif abdurakib did right before uh the festival last year when his book came out about a tribe called quest um let's play a little excerpt of an interview that we did with katya apikina earlier this year about her book, The Deeper the Water, The Uglier the Fish. This novel revolves around two sisters, Edith and May, and most of the novel is told from their point of view. The novel starts in 1997, and the sisters are in New York City. Uh, Katya, can you tell our listeners why they are there? So, they moved from Louisiana, where they were living with their mom, um, to live with their dad, who they didn't know growing up, um, because their mother is committed to a mental hospital. And their dad is a famous novelist, um, but they didn't have any sort of relationship with him growing up until um, they got there, and they're like 14 and 16, so they're teenagers. Great. In 1997 is a very interesting year. Um, in my mind, I sort of marked that era of my life via what was happening in the world of music and the arts. One of the best albums of all time, in my opinion, OK Computer by Radiohead, was released in June of 1997. Uh, can you tell us why you chose to place the novel in this year? Um, 
Yeah, I think it was an important date for me, too. It was when I was just starting high school. Um, so I do think I was, like, particularly, like, a cultural sponge then. Um, and just, like, aware of stuff that was happening. I had visited New York when I was in high school. And I lived in New York after, you know, I went to college in New York um, in the 2000s. But it was very different by the time I was living there and when I was visiting it in the 90s it still felt like kind of like exciting and gritty um but also I think you know the book takes place in 1997 and then also um in 2012 but then it also kind of goes back in time as well to the civil rights era um, of like the 60s in the South and I think just to like there are also just kind of practical considerations of when things had to happen when the parents could have met um, to have it still kind of coincide with certain historical events um, so I think I was just kind of doing some math as well mm-hmm. and we're back um Jeff Jackson is going to be in conversation with Katya Apikina. He is one of our favorites. He's a Charlotte author who published his first novel with $2 Radio, also called Mira Corpora, also shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Award the year it came out. Then he wrote a uh, sequel to Mira Corpora, or a companion book actually called Novi Sad, um, which is fantastic and very hard to get a hold of. If you've got a copy of that, consider yourselves very lucky. Um, Then he wrote... A book called Destroy All Monsters, which was kind of the uh, rock and roll novel um, of 2018. And uh, Chris, you want to talk about Jeff's um, program last year at the festival, maybe? Yeah, so Jeff was in conversation uh, with one of my, f- uh, the author of one of my favorite books from the last couple of years, the Sarah book. Um, well, I'm blanking on Scott it. McClanahan. Scott McClanahan. And. Um, <clears throat> Those two uh, had a really interesting conversation that that wandered all over the place, and it was actually a real treat from what, what they read uh, and the esoteric reading that they do to prepare them for their writing, to get them in that space and to be influenced in a way, even though maybe their writing uh, doesn't reflect that on the surface. It was really interesting to see what was sort of uh, deeper in their foundation and got them there. Uh, so that was really interesting last year. It was one of my favorite programs. Yeah, and uh, Jeff's a great guy, always has fascinating things to say. Let's play an excerpt of an interview with Jeff Jackson discussing his latest novel, Destroy All Monsters. Um, Jeff, this novel deals a lot with death. Of course, the subject of the novel is an epidemic of murders that takes place at shows, rock and roll shows, bluegrass shows, jam band shows, electronic shows, hip-hop shows. Uh, deals with the death of animals in the woods surrounding the town of Arcadia at the hands of hunters uh, who are taking part in a contest to thin out the woods surrounding the city. And then there's the character of Florian and his mother who goes by Jet, Jeannie, and Jeanette. Uh, can you talk a little bit about death in your novel and the weight that it suffers upon your characters? Well, there's a lot... Uh, there's, the, there's the epidemic of killings that happen in the book. And there's sort of how people are reacting to that, both in terms of that happening as a national phenomenon and happening far away from them and trying to, how do you process the same way we all sort of struggle with, how do you process with these 
sort of terrible national events that don't necessarily directly touch you, but feel like they're sort of ripping apart the fabric of everyday life. Um, and then it deals with what happens when a tragedy like that, you know, hits really close to home. And how do you, how do you handle that? Um, you know, Florian's mother is someone who has died sort of early in the book, uh, off stage, as it were. And he's, he's dealing with that grief. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot in the book of people dealing with grief, trying to figure out ways to, to move forward. How do, you, how do you handle these sort of tragedies? How do you handle this sort of violence and find, uh, find a way forward? And so the A side and the B side, I think, offer different paths forward for the characters. Definitely. And along those lines, there's also the sense of death and also grief as it pertains to artistry and music in particular, uh, the death of rock and roll. Characters remark again and again about the lack of realness or genuine artistry in the bands of their contemporaries. Um, Zini, is is that the correct pronunciation? I, I say Zenny, but you know. Yep, Zenny <laughs> in particular, uh, to broaden the horizons a bit, feels that the more readily available music has become now with services like Spotify and Apple Music, but in Zinni's world, perhaps it was with services like Napster or Pirate Bay, uh, as she does have mountains of hard drives full of music. Uh, the more readily available this music has become, the less important it has become. Can you talk about this idea? Yeah, I mean, I think this is like a reality as much as an idea that the fact that there's so, I mean, on the one hand, it's great that so much music is readily available. And it's fantastic not to have to sort of search for months to find something and find some warped, crappy copy of it that, you know, you pay a lot of money for and you can barely hear it. Um, but there's something about the fact that so much is available that's really flattened music out. That's really, um, I think that's made us listen a lot, lot less intently. I know so few people who listen to records on Spotify more than like two or three times, even like some of their favorite bands. It's rather listen and sort of move on. Um, there's so much music that I think requires a lot of listens to really dig into it and understand it. And uh, I, I suspect there's a lot of really wonderful records that haven't made any sort of ripple because they don't offer that sort of immediacy. Um, I th there's a certain disposability about everything being available. When everything's available, it, it tends to, it seems to sort of like lose its meaning. I remember Kendrick Lamar complaining that even Damn didn't last as long in the cultural consciousness as he wanted. And I was thinking like, if Kendrick Lamar is complaining, like what chance does any like, you know, even second tier band have, much less some sort of like local band of like moving the cultural needle at all. Listeners, we are going to pause here and return next week to talk to you some more about the amazing authors we have visiting Raleigh for the North Carolina Book Festival, which will be February 21st through 23rd, 2020 in downtown Raleigh. Please visit www.ncbookfestival.com for more info. I'd like to thank Chris Tonelli for joining me. Chris and I are co-owners and co-directors of the North Carolina Book Festival. Chris will be back with me next week. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.